That's Arika Kahn-Wilker. Today's guest is a graduate student at Columbia University and the founder of Wild Tiger, a nonprofit supporting efforts to protect tigers in India. She explains how protecting people and the planet also helps tigers. She'll also share insights about her superpower, thinking outside the box as a scientist. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show. Sarika, I am so excited to talk to you today. You know, I've known your dad probably since you were born. And when he posted on LinkedIn a link to some of the research and work that you're doing with tigers, I was like, oh, we got to get Sarika on the show. So welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, those words are very flattering and um, it's really exciting to see uh, interest in, in the research that I'm doing. Yeah, well, it is just a, it's just a thrill for me to to connect with you, and uh, uh, I, I love your your study of evolutionary biology there and ecology at uh, at Columbia. I think that's such a an important important field, uh, um, and so I I'm excited about that. But I want to focus our conversation on your work with tigers. You you've set up this nonprofit now that you're running. Uh, to help preserve and protect uh, tigers in in India, and it, what a challenge! Tell us a little bit about how this came about. Uh, yeah, of course. I think um, knowing the story behind yeah, what's a, a small tiger conservation organization doing in the U.S. Um, when when all the tigers are actually halfway around the world, um, I think it's uh, I love uh, the chance to share the story um, and tell people why. Tigers mean so much to me um, and sort of the work that Wild Tiger is doing. Um, so I guess it, it started out actually sort of as a, a smaller, with smaller goals in mind. Um, I started this organization in 2015, um, and that was after I went on my first sort of professional trip um, to India. Um, I had actually been traveling to India um, since I was a child because my dad is, is from there, um, but that was mostly as a tourist and to visit relatives. Uh, and when I visited after I got my undergraduate degree in biology, I came with a totally different perspective. Uh, and I went, I went to rural India and I saw um, tigers, but I also, most importantly, I saw how uh, people are living with tigers and the challenges that come along with that. And those challenges had been missing um, from a lot of the narrative that us in the United States have about tiger conservation. Um, for for uh, a very oversimplistic narrative that a lot of us are given are that, oh, we have to increase tiger numbers to save them. Um, but it's just a lot more complicated than that. So I got really interested in just tiger conservation um, in central India in particular. Um, and what I was seeing on the ground when I went there was really impactful work happening by locally led uh, small organizations. So these aren't your bingos your big international uh, non-governmental organizations that everyone's heard of. These are small organizations that hardly have the funds to um, pay their staff, let alone market themselves or have like a really good website. So these locally run organizations were doing amazing, amazing work with communities, with tigers, with wildlife. Um, and I thought like, wow, like these people need support. Um, and so that's actually kind of why Wild Tiger was born. It was born out of the idea of let me just financially support these organizations by raising fun money in the United States 
um, and, and giving it to the organizations that I know are doing really good work. Um, and then also scientific support. So when I, when I was able to uh, go over to India um, after that initial uh, time visit, um, I would go when I could um, and provide scientific support. So help in data collection, help uh, a lot in data analysis um, and uh, figuring out um, from like a scientific perspective um, whether sort of, sort of certain interventions were working um, or just like measuring progress of, of certain things. Um, so that's kind of how, how it began and, and it sort of um, uh, transformed and, and evolved a little since then. Oh, fantastic. This is, this is such important work. I, I, the, the tigers are so endangered, aren't they? I, I think they're just uh, terribly threatened. Um, you mentioned that it's much more complicated than just increasing the numbers. Help us understand what are the issues, and I think you're thinking about that at least in part as a scientist. What are the issues you see? Yeah, so I mean, one of the issues, I'll tell you about the first person I ever met who actually lived with tigers. Um, what I mean by that is in a village that's near forest uh, where tigers live in India. And um, I visited this man whose wife had died, who had been mauled by a tiger while out collecting firewood. Um, so a horrible tragedy, um, uh, just having uh, you know, a community member die and, and be lost from the community. Um, and also, uh, you know, we were finding that that's just uh, one, one sort of person that I met, but it, it, it was a pattern that we were finding that there are, were certain um, uh, livelihood uh, patterns, you could say, such as collecting firewood, um, which increased the risk of people getting attacked by tigers or leopards. Um, and so, uh, and then I got interested in firewood collection, right? Um, sort of like, well, you know, why are um, these women and children, you know, um, it is mostly women and children who are burdened with collecting firewood and cooking at home. Um, it, is, it is mostly those people who are outgoing collecting firewood. I started wondering, well, why? Because, you know, I'm a biologist. I was always focused on the wildlife, but then I started getting more interested in the people. Um, and then I learned more about, uh, you know, from a more development perspective about energy access and cooking fuel. Uh, and so, you know, they were gathering this firewood um, for cooking fuel. And so, um, you can't, you know, sort of, if, if you don't know why people are collecting firewood, you can just say, well, you know, just have them stop collecting firewood and they won't have to be in the risk of being attacked by a tiger yeah. or a leopard. But it's just not like saying, simple. don't, you know, just ask them to stop eating. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. It's one of the, you know, essential parts of being human and, and an animal is, is needing food. And so you can't tell them to, to stop, um, yeah, to, to stop cooking food. So, um, you know, so all of a sudden you have this wicked problem where not only, you know, you're connected to tigers and sort of the conservation sphere, but then all of a sudden you're also connected to the more development sphere of like, how can we like improve these people's lives so they aren't depending on the forest and so they aren't risking their lives um, to get attacked by tigers. Um, so, um, you know, that's firewood collection is it was one very um, sort of um, one example of the many ways that this is complicated. And the same thing with toilets. Um, people 
in these communities. They uh, relieve themselves outside. And again, when you're out bending down, um, tigers, you know, you become the sort of the level of the prey. Um, and that's the same thing when people are bending over getting firewood, actually, as well. So um, that, again, puts them at risk of getting attacked by tigers and leopards. And again, like access to, um, you know, uh, clean bathrooms um, is just a, a global poverty problem, right? Um, and so these sort of like, all of these problems are, are very intertwined. And um, I think in that sense, that's why tiger conservation is not just about saving tigers, particularly in the central Indian landscape. Um, even though tigers are found across, um, there are 13 tiger range countries, um, but India does hold uh, a majority of the global tiger population. Um, and there's a lot of this sort of human wildlife uh, dimensions going on. Yeah, I, I can only imagine with, with India's huge population, how these human tiger interactions uh, are happening all the time. Uh, and so looking for systemic ways to reduce those uh, enables them. Because I imagine, you tell me, when someone is hurt by a tiger, uh, people react, I, I imagine, negatively. And they want to get revenge on the tiger. Isn't that one of the natural things? And doesn't that in then threaten the life of the tiger as well? So it's kind of, that certainly is one of the things that can happen. Um, but it, that's not the thing that happens all the time. You know, one of the reasons tigers have been able to survive in India so long is because um, people have had a great tolerance for this conflict. And part of that comes from the uh, religious um, symbolism of animals itself and the tiger. Um, the tiger is a god. And so, you know, when I go into the landscape where there is a lot of conflict, I will see temples um, with a tiger figurine sort of like where where a human life was, was taken. Um, and so they both like, it's both a, a fear and a reverence, sort of interesting um, sort of tolerance and respect going on, um, I would say. Um, but uh, because um, things are changing, uh, in India actually tiger populations are increasing a, a bit. Um, so you have more movement, et cetera. So things are changing and so, tolerance changes and so then then you do i think get more of this sort of like negative um reaction of just let's let's get revenge on the tiger um but certainly it's just it's just not easy to live with tigers yeah. so as you think about uh this th these complexities and you've identified two you know the lack of toilets and uh cooking with uh, firewood what are the ngos that you're working with doing to address those problems. I imagine you raise those issues in part because NGOs you are partnered with are doing something, but maybe I misread the situation. Uh, yeah, completely, actually. Um, one of the organizations that um, really actually jump-started my career and who I uh, continually work with, uh, Tiger Research and Conservation Trust, um, they do a, a lot of work um, mitigating human-wildlife conflict. Uh, it actually start. They started um, with sort of uh, empowering the community with um, uh, knowledge about about what what puts you at risk for being attacked, um, and sort of created these 
community teams within each village to actually monitor around the village for tiger movement. Um, and so to sort of alert the village um, when, when there was movement around. Um, and, and then that has, uh, over the last um, five years, that has also transformed into more of this livelihoods um, development sort of sphere. Um, so they are working in communities and, um, you know, uh, helping them, providing LPG connections. LPG is liquefied petroleum gas, sort of an alternative to firewood. Um, just generally um, helping helping develop the community in, in sort of different ways. Um, so that's certainly, certainly one thing. Um, another is just, uh, sorry, um, to, to continue. Um, another sort of um, aspect of all of this, um, I, I didn't really talk about it directly, is just livelihood options in general. Um, and so uh, are extremely lacking. Um, a lot of these people are um, dependent on agriculture or daily wage jobs. Um, there's just not a lot of opportunity in these areas. Um, and so just uh, creating livelihood opportunities is really important. Um, and so one of the other organizations that I work with, uh, Last Wilderness Foundation, um, they work really closely with indigenous communities mainly to create livelihoods. So they have a jewelry making thing, um, enterprise, and they also sort of train indigenous people to lead uh, tourist groups uh, through the forest. No, that's that's fantastic. Uh, it, it is so interesting to think about the fundamental approach here uh, for protecting, preserving, cultivating tiger populations in India is to help people, uh, and that connection isn't obvious uh, to those of us who don't encounter tigers very often in the wild here in, in the United States. So uh, fascinating, fascinating work. Uh, I commend you for stepping up. I'm excited to see the work that you're doing and the difference you're making. Uh, obviously, you know, you're nearly done with your PhD at Columbia. You are a wicked smart human being. Um, I know how much work that is to do a PhD, to think that you have also done the uh, you're running a nonprofit at the same time, just, you know, double, triple kudos. I wonder, as you look at what you've accomplished over the last five years or so, and it is so impressive, what do you see as your superpower? Yeah, I, I think my superpower is being a scientist, but thinking beyond that label as a box. Um, to me, I think scientists have been so defined by society um, as, a, a, I mean, first off, as a white male and, uh, and as somebody who just publishes in peer review publications. Um, and that's basically it. <laughs> um, get funding, publish, and that's sort of the cycle. That's the life cycle of a scientist. Um, but that's just so far beyond, I think, what scientists should do and can do. Um, and so like right now, our society is so um, sort of like mistrusting of science. Um, 
as in, in general. And so I think, um, you know, as a scientist, that's a little, uh, that's kind of a bummer. Uh, and so to me, I think creating, like having scientists communicate directly with the public and be more of public figures and public leaders um, in, in life in general um, would, be, would be nice. You know, I mean, can you imagine you know, a scientist as popular as, like, Kim Kardashian, you know, people are, like, wondering, like, what is their perspective on this, on this new paper that came out, you know, um, I mean, like, making science cool again, <laughs> um, basically, and um, so I think just allowing scientists to be more creative in, in how they express their knowledge um, is, is something I'm interested in, uh, and then, also, what I'm really passionate about is um, doing better science. And what I mean by that is not only sort of allowing uh, more diverse perspectives to do science, that is to study and to pursue it as a career and actually become scientists, um, but also like when we're doing science, I think we need to be like a lot more cognizant of how like how we're impacting the people that we're collecting data on or the people who own the land where we are collecting data from. Um, and then and then the impact of our data beyond that peer review publication. Um, like if your data, if your results does have policy implications, um, is it, are those policy changes going to be seen through or is that are those just like empty words on a paper? Um, so to me, I just think that uh, scientists, um, we have a responsibility because of our almost, I mean, you know, I think uh, a while ago I, I learned about how people are very trusting of scientists actually, um, which is interesting because there's like a, a mistrust of science. But anyways, there's a general like trust of overall of, of, of a person who is a scientist. Um, and, and so like using that privilege that we have um, to our advantage to actually like benefit society through the knowledge of the science and also through actually like changing the world with our science, like seeing those changes through. Um, yeah, just because too many times I think the, the papers just sit in a journal um, and they have really great recommendations, but nothing like ever happens to them. I mean, like I, I'm just immediately thinking of the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, there were like several peer review publications that said this was happening, this was going to happen. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a great point that you're making, such a great superpower you're identifying, this idea of doing science, doing science better, not being constrained by the, the, the box. I, I, I think that's really uh, a powerful thing. And you're really manifesting that effectively with your work with the Tigers, right? You, you've already stepped up. You, you didn't wait to, to get your PhD. You didn't wait till life was easier. You were already rich. You said, let's get going on this now. Very impressive. I wonder as you think about how you might coach others who are in the science field, and I, I want you not just to think about someone like you five years ago or, you know, someone who's a starting a PhD. I want you to think about uh, speaking to 
your PI. Think about speaking to uh, people who uh, are in positions of authority uh, how, and, and power and take just a minute maybe to speak truth to power and tell us how you would coach them to use these principles, to adopt this view, this worldview of you as using science deliberately and proactively to do good. Uh, wow. Um, well, I think the number one thing I would ask people is to commit to their study population or study area. Um, you know, you don't have to be monogamous, <laughs> but commit to that place. I mean, you know, uh, I think a lot of people, a lot of scientists I hear, you know, they'll do what they did in their uh, older scientists, uh, what they did in their PhD is completely different from what they end up doing. And that can be true, but I don't know. I think there's there's some value to like even starting out, even if when you don't really know what's going to happen in the future, like starting out as a PhD, there's a value to like really just committing yourself to a place and, and seeing positive change through somewhere. Um, and so, so just, yeah, commit to, to places, um, have, have some place-based research going on and work would be great. Um, and I guess another thing would take, um, the one to two years plus, um, that it takes to create, um, and build relationships with local people and local governments, um, before you even start data collection. Um, so I think like making conversations and genuine collaboration um, a part of every work um, would be, I think, really great. Um, and yeah, I think those are the two main things that immediately yeah. come to mind. Uh, that's, that's really powerful insight, really powerful insight. Well, uh, Sarika, I'm so glad that we had a chance to connect. I'm grateful for all that you've shared with us today. I'm excited about the work you're doing. Before we wrap up, would you take a minute and tell people how they can learn more about you, your nonprofit, how they can connect with you, maybe social media or otherwise? Tell people how they can engage, maybe donate to your efforts. Yeah, of course. Well, I think the number one way to stay in touch with me is to sign up for my newsletter for the Wild Tiger newsletter. So go to my website. I'm sure um, I have it uh, sort of below in the description here, but uh, wild-tiger.org. Uh, sign up for the newsletter. Um, and then I'm most active on Instagram. Um, so if you want to get a little, get some more like personable communications from me, um, you can find me on Instagram at Sarika Living Wild. Fantastic. Well, uh, Sarika, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We wish you every success in your effort to protect and preserve tigers by helping people to prosper. <laughs> uh, yes. And we wish you every success in that great work. Thank you so much. So, it was fabulous to be on here. All righty. Now, let's do some good. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, 
Superpowers for Good as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.